Well, first of all, thank you all very much for coming. My name's Janet Hunter. Um, I'm in the Economic History Department and the Suntory Theatre International Centres at the LSE. I'm also affiliated to the Asia Research Centre, which has kindly organised this, this lecture. We're delighted to have the opportunity of welcoming to LSE David Pilling, who is currently the Asia editor of the Financial Times. Uh, he was the Tokyo bureau chief of the FT between 2002 and 2008, um, and he's written widely on the area of Asia and won a number of awards for his writing. Um, he's currently based in Hong Kong as the Asia editor, and he has just published his new book, um, copies of which are available outside after, should you like to publish one. I'm sure that um, David would be delighted if you purchased lots and lots of them. Um, um, but I'll remind you of that at the end. Um, the way we propose to do this is to, David will speak um, for around 40 minutes or so. Uh, we will then have a few comments from Professor Ian Nish in response to the presentation, and then we will open uh, the floor to questions and comments, um, and we have to finish by around 8 o'clock. So, without more hesitation, I will hand you over to David. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Janet. Thank you, uh, LSE, and thank you, everybody, for coming out um, tonight. Um, I should start by saying that I am not an economist um, but I know enough about economics to be dangerous. Um, actually, I suppose on second thoughts, that means that I'm roughly the same as an economist. But, um, but I have worked for the FT for 20 years, and in that time I've picked up a little bit of uh, economics. Now, and, and I'm going to talk a little bit about economics tonight as well. This is a very hallowed, famous institution. Um, it's quite overawing to be in this uh, uh, lovely auditorium. Um, and, of course, in such a hallowed institution, I would never ever be so crass as to wave my book around and encourage you to buy it, tell you that I might sign it if you did. Um, and I would never borrow anybody's <coughs> phrase and say, buy my abenomics. So anyway, this is the end of my uh, pitch. Um, so let me tell you what I'm going to talk about um, tonight. Um, I'm really going to talk about two themes. I'm not going to talk about my book, believe it or not. So I'm going to talk about... Uh, Japan's economy, which is, as many of you know, undergoing uh, a, a radical experiment. Slightly less radical now, given that we're all used to quantitative easing and zero interest rates uh, around the world. But Japan has kind of you know, doubled down on that with something called QQE. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. I'm also going to talk about um, history and geopolitics that Japan-China, because I think... Uh, it would be silly not to. So, let me start. So this is two covers um, from The uh, Economist. Um, An Abe could really go uh, uh, two ways. Um, Abenomics. There could be uh, a virtuous circle created... Um, in, in which Japan could really get itself out of 15, 20 years of deflation. Um, or it could not go so well. You could have something called Abigeddon. People are beginning to call it Abigeddon. Now, the second picture, the first picture here is soaring along. The second picture reminds me of the guy who jumps out of the 100-storey building and someone sticks their head out on the 50th floor and says, how's it going? And he says, so far, so good. Um, so we'll see. I had a side swipe at, uh, at Abe. It's quite strange in a sense that Shinzo Abe should have now a branch of economics named after him. I said that um, uh, Ben Bernanke knew about as much about Ikebana flower arranging as Abe knew about economics. But here we are. He's, he bought this idea um, that Japan needs to do something radical to get out of deflation. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about why the background to this. I'm actually going to take my jacket off. I hope you don't mind. 
So in this slide, um, I would like you to focus not on um, Haruki Murakami, um, but on the cat. Um, so why? When I was, when I was trying to explain uh, deflation in my book, I, I, I went back to arriving in Tokyo in 2002. I uh, moved into a, a, an area called uh, Higashi Kitazawa. And in the fridge, I found an envelope. And on the envelope was written, cat money. And in the envelope was 30,000 yen, then worth about $250. And two things occurred to me. The first was that it's really expensive to feed a cat in Japan. Um, the second was um, po- possibly slightly more profound, maybe only slightly, um, but it was that actually the fridge was not a bad place to keep your money in Japan at that time because, as you'll remember, prices started falling in Japan in about 1995 and have continued to do so really almost continuously until this year, until Abenomics. Now, a very sort of back-of-the-envelope calculation. If you'd have put 100,000 yen in the fridge in 1995, taken it out in 2012, you would have 112,000 yen in, in real money and spending power, given that prices had, had fallen. If you'd have put that same money in the stock market, you would have had um, uh, 50,000 yen. It would have halved in value. If you'd have put it in the bank you would have also had roughly 112,000 yen. The interest rate at the time for deposits was 0.01%. So, um, and the bank would have had the inconvenience of bank charges, of going to and from the bank to get your money out. So Japan was a place where it actually made sense to keep your money in the fridge. And in fact, um, something like the GDP of Belgium was in the equivalent of the fridge or the tansu or under the futon So something very strange um, was going on in Japan at that time. Um, Now, Martin Wolf, my colleague at the Financial Times, he called deflation um, a sorcerer's apprentice of debt, a machine for making a bad situation worse. And what he meant by that was that in a normal economy, as you know, if you borrow money, then gradually your debt sort of shrinks, shrinks away relative to your current earnings relative to current prices. In deflation, of course, exactly the opposite happens. Your debt gets bigger and bigger and bigger as prices um, fall. Um, So this really militates against risk-taking, against investing, against spending, and that's um, that's why the fridge. So the result of that is this picture. Japan, I don't really need to tell you, is the red line. You know, it looks like somebody's flatlining. Um, from 1990 to 2012, um, Japan, in nominal terms, nominal terms, goes precisely nowhere. Um, that same period, uh, Germany doubles in size, and the UK and the US, their economies increase in nominal terms by about two and a half times. And the result of that is this. And um, this is the, the graph that. We all know, uh, in a sense, uh, because this is Japan's exploding debt, 240% of GDP, in gross terms, not in net terms, but still. Um, It's a a number that makes people very nervous. A finance ministry guy once told me that if you piled up all the debt in in notes, it would be 14,000 times higher than Mount Fuji. It struck me as a very peculiar exercise. But anyway, the debt is... uh, the, The debt's big. However... Let's look at the picture again in real terms. This is a real GDP per person of working age. And Japan, again, the red line. It's marginally below the, the three countries that I mentioned, but not much. So if you strip out um, uh, deflation or inflation, and if you strip out uh, population growth, then Japan did not do so badly in the so-called lost decades. Here's another chart. Look at the second chart. Um, This is basically um, productivity growth. It's stated in PPP terms. It's this peculiar EK um, dollars. But basically, it's uh, purchasing power parity to make the comparisons fairer. And you'll see that um, productivity growth in Japan during the last 12 years, the same as Britain, better than that miracle economy, Germany, 
Uh, and a little bit better than that not-so-American economy, Italy, as you see, productivity appears to have shrunk in Italy. But, um, but again, you know, this is not the disastrous performance that we maybe think of when we think of the, the lost decades. Here is um, Japan's corporate strength still. This is after 20 years of deflation. Um, now, I, I totted these up myself. This is by revenue, not by profits, and profits maybe wouldn't show Japan in quite so flattering a light. Um, but nonetheless, this is the Fortune 500 stated by uh, revenue. In the Fortune 500, 56 of those companies are Japanese, beaten only by the US, which you'd expect 125, and China 73. A lot of those, well, not, uh, I mean, some of those Chinese companies are big state owned enterprises that, in a more market oriented economy, would, might have been broken up. So the Chinese number, you could say, is a little bit um, uh, flattered. So the UK, 22. Germany, 30. So in other words, there is still a lot of corporate depth in Japan. We tend to think of the Sonys, um, uh, with the Panasonics, these companies that you know, used to be taking on the world um, and, and suddenly you know, we don't want to buy a Sony product anymore, we buy a Samsung or we buy an Apple. And so we kind of map onto that the idea that Japan as an industrial force has collapsed. Um, now, I don't think that's true. Um, there are problems, there, and we can talk about that in the Q&A session if you'd like. There are, there are certainly big problems. Japan has not transferred very well, I think, from the analog manufacturing catch-up phase to the sort of digital systems and, uh, and all of that. And there, you know, the, the fact that, so, that Sony didn't know how to um, um, make uh, an iPod, even though it had all the technology, I think it you know, is important. But nonetheless, there are a lot of um, uh, Japanese uh, companies. If you go to Kyoto, there are companies with 20 and 30 billion market capitalization. When the earthquake and tsunami struck in Tohoku, for example, Tohoku is not the center of Japan's industry, as many of you will know. This is sort of up in the north. You know, people think there's nothing there. And yet, you know, when the, when the water rushed in, there were factories in Louisiana that had to stop production because they couldn't make cars because the little microprocessors that go into all sorts of things happen to be made in huge quantities in Tohoku. That's just one tiny example. But it shows you that Japan is still, in terms of industrial power, a, um, something, a, a country to be reckoned with. Now, this is Japan's terrible debt burden stated, um, stated in slightly different terms. So this is its actual debt payments, uh, interest rate payments, as a percentage of GDP. And as you'll see, the picture looks entirely different. Um, because, of course, because of deflation, because of these very, very low interest rates that Japan has had, the debt payments were very cheap, in fact. And so as a percentage of GDP, um, uh, the debt burden in Japan was less than in Britain, according to this, this chart anyway. Um, certainly less than Greece, less than Germany, less than France. Um, so at this point, you might begin to wonder, and it's a, it would be a question, I think, worth asking, uh, what was the problem with deflation? What was the big deal? Couldn't Japan have just gone on like that um, uh, forever? And it is true that Japan was in a sort of deflationary equilibrium where there were, pro there were certainly problems associated with it, but in sort of macroeconomic terms, um, if you discount the debt, which is maybe you can't, but if you discount the, the, the rising debt as a percentage of GDP, then actually things weren't, so bad. So why, why Abenomics? Why do we need Abenomics? Well, let's just have a quick look. So animal spirits. Animal spirits is this risk-taking. This is the, the go back to the money in the fridge. Um, Japanese banks um, repaired their balance sheets and could have afforded to lend, but they didn't. And if you can see, there's just an absolute collapse in credit um, from the peak, about 95, because it took it took the Japanese a few years to realize that the 1990 crash was real and not just a kind of a blip. So it all starts to sink in 95 and really has not recovered. Maybe it's just flickering up at the moment, partly in response to Abenomics. Um, Japanese companies could afford um, to spend, but um, they've, instead they've built up this, these huge savings. And uh, it's really the savings um, that they've built up that is the huge demand shortage um, uh, in Japan. And that is, um, uh, that's one of the reasons why the government has had to, or has chosen to anyway, spend in terms of deficit spending to make up for that, um, hence, the, hence the debt. Um, 
So these things are, these things are all linked. So this, this might be a reason for Abenomics. Now, I, I went with Martin Wolf um, last month and we interviewed Haruhiko Kuroda, the uh, governor of the Bank of Japan. Um, and he talked about the problems uh, uh, of deflation because we asked him the same question. Why do you need to do this? Um, so I won't read all this out, but you can see one, two, and three are areas that I've already covered. I'll just stress number four. You know, it's not good for innovation. It's not good for uh, risk-taking. It's not good for um, animal spirits. And so the decision... So Abe took the decision, and I'll talk a bit more about why I think he might have done that, um, to launch this thing called Abenomics, which he's described as the three arrows. For those of you who don't know the story, it's a story comes from a feudal lord who told his sons that um, he had three sons and he told them that they basically needed to stick together it's a, sort of a King Lear story really if they split up then they'd war and they'd be weak and, and he demonstrated this by, hold, by snapping an arrow but then he put three arrows together and couldn't snap them and so the idea is that three policies, three policies are better than one so what are the policies the first policy is fiscal flexibility um, not, as you're sometimes reading the newspapers, terrible things, um, uh, um, sort of fiscal stimulus. There was a fiscal stimulus, but it's been followed actually by a fiscal contraction because, um, as many of you will know, Japan has decided to put up its uh, consumption tax from a very low rate of 5% to 8% from this March and subsequently to 10%. So it was fiscal, uh, fiscal stimulus followed by fiscal contraction. Um, the second, and in my opinion, by far the most important bit of Abenomics, which I'll explain in a bit, is um, monetary stimulus. So uh, when Kuroda came to the Bank of Japan March 20th, he said that he would double the monetary base. Um, th this is, um, uh, I, I don't remember the numbers right now, but this is really serious stuff. I mean, this is bigger than the Fed. This is bigger than um, the BOE. BOE. This, is, this is really huge. And I think even by the end of Justice Exercise, about 25% of Japan's debt will actually be on the books of the Bank of Japan. Um, and I suspect that they'll do more. And then the third is structural reform, the so-called third arrow. And the thing that a lot of people talk about, this is the kind of supply-side stuff, the stuff to um, uh, improve productivity um, and deregulate, liberalise. I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. So... What happened when Abenomics was announced? Um, it's important to realise that this chart begins to happen um, in January when Abe's elected, not when, uh, not when Kuroda is put in the Bank of Japan. It, it, it sort of takes off even more when, when Kuroda arrives. But this dramatic weakening of the yen and shooting up of the stock market, this happened really because of an announcement and the announcement was the following. The announcement was, we, for 15 years, um, we in Japan uh, thought that it was impossible to defeat deflation. This was the, uh, the Bank of Japan's line. Um, the Bank of Japan does not have the tools to defeat deflation, and there's no point in setting an um, a, a inflation target because we can't meet it. Over to you, government. That was basically the Bank of Japan's um, uh, line, sort of dressed up a little bit um, more nicely than that. Um, now, Abe and his advisors really said, that's not right. Abe said, um, yes, we can uh, get to inflation. Um, we do have the monetary tools to do it. And, uh, you know, I'm going to fire the, the head of the Bank of Japan. If, if he can't do it, I will abolish Bank of Japan's independence if they can't do it. But it can, it can be done. And as you see... as this had a, an, an enormous effect on the markets before any single policy was taken. Um, now, there's another factor, a political factor, that I, sh I should just mention here as well, which is that Abe, of course, um, is now in a quite a strong position politically, and he's likely to be in office until 2016. This, for um, modern Japanese prime ministers, is extraordinary, really. You can, you can go back... You have to go back to Koizumi. Before that, you have to go back to Nakasone in the 80s for any prime minister that's really been around very much at all. You know, they're sort of on a one-month, uh, one I was going to say. Some of them are, actually. A one-year uh, um, cycle. And so much so that Lula da Silva, 
um, the Brazilian president, was on a stage with a Japanese prime minister whose name he couldn't remember. Um, the answer was Hatoyama, but I wasn't around to tell him at the time. But um, uh, he wasn't at all embarrassed. This was the interesting thing. Because he, he, he literally said, he said, well, you know, you say hello to one in the morning and you say goodbye to another one in the afternoon. You know, big, <laughs> big deal. Now, who's going to do, do proper deals? Who's going to make a trade agreement? Or who's going to, you know... I mean, Obama had no interest in seeing Japanese prime ministers for a long time because he just thought, you know, what's the point? I'm, I'm never going to see them again. And so I think this also is, is, a, is a part of um, Abenomics. Now, the third arrow. Um, if you read many papers, including some, some articles uh, in my own newspaper, the Financial Times, certainly if you read the Wall Street Journal, um, they will say the consensus view is the third arrow, structural reform, um, is the most important part uh, of Abenomics. Now, I'm certainly not saying that structural reform is not important. I mean, structural reform's a bit like, um, you know, it's milk and honey. I mean, everybody needs, to some extent, to undergo change, to keep up. There is a sort of global competition out there. By the way, I can't stand the word reform, because reform is just a captured word. It just means change that is good, but of course there can be change that is bad as well, um, but reform is a very loaded term I think but that's not, that's not the principal reason that I'm saying that I don't think the third arrow is the most important. The principal reason um, is that as I explained, Abe really reversed um, uh, what uh, Japan had been saying for 15 years because the story in Japan for 15 years had been precisely that, that structural reform was what Japan needed and that monetary policy was useless and Abenomics is in a sense turning that on its head. Um, if you remember the chart that I showed you, productivity really in Japan has not been that bad. Um, it's been about 1 to 1.5%, and that's not hideous. So the idea that it can suddenly switch on structural reform and get you know, a huge bump in, um, in productivity, uh, I would be a little bit sceptical about that. Um, just to give you a, an idea, um, many of you remember um, someone called Margaret Thatcher, um, who launched something of a revolution in this country. This was meant to shake Britain out of, the, uh, out of its old ways and transform the country, make it more competitive. Now, according to Martin Wolf, that led to a productivity rise of about 0.5% a year trend. So you have to go through an awful lot of pain um, to get you know, a fairly small result. Now, Abe is talking about 2% real growth in Japan. Now, given that the workforce is shrinking by 0.5% a year, unless they're going to do something about that, that implies a 2.5% um, increase in productivity every year. That would be unprecedented. So I'm a little bit sceptical. Let me just go through a couple, very briefly, of, this, of the p reforms that people talk about. One is agriculture. You know, transform agriculture, transform Japan. Agriculture is a tiny, tiny part of the Japanese economy, about 1%. You could double its productivity and it wouldn't make much difference. Um, now, uh, it, it's true, you know, you could say it would have a demonstrative effect. Others would realise, yeah, we can change. We can, so so maybe, maybe that's true. Maybe I'm discounting that. Labour. Um, people say that Japan's labour market is highly um, inflexible and one of the um, uh, proposed third arrow reforms that Abe has would be to make it easier to hire and fire. Um, now, I would argue that Japan's labour market has not been inflexible at all. It's been, in some ways, extraordinarily flexible. Because, of course, one way of having a flexible labour market is to, is to hire and fire people. Um, another is to lower wages, which um, the Americans, British, not very good at. Wages tend to be quite sticky. Um, whereas in Japan, they can lower wages and have. Um, another way is to lower um, hours, the number of hours worked. Again, that's not very easy in, uh, in the West, tends not to be. In Japan, that's quite easy because people were doing all these ridiculous hours of overtime, so you just cut them. And then the, the third area, an area that is not very pleasant for those in it necessarily, but is that there has been a sort of bifurcation of the labour market where you've got a, uh, a very flexible um, a chunk of the labour market now getting on for 40% of the labour market. People that are on low wages, no benefits, very easy to hire and fire. So macroeconomically, Japan's labour market has not been um, inflexible at all. So the idea that you can suddenly switch on all these reforms and everything will be groovy, I, I, have, a, I have my doubts about. Um, I've nearly finished the economy. Um, how am I doing for time? Sorry. 
Okay. Just quickly, will it work? Um, just, just briefly. So what we need is inflation. Um, at the moment, uh, we, we have got inflation. If, if you look at uh, a core inflation, which uh, excludes, which sorry, includes energy and excludes fresh food, we're up to about 1.2%, which is the best that Japan has had in a long time. However, you could be very sceptical about that because, if you, um, because energy prices um, are a big, big part of that. And energy prices have gone up really because the yen has been devalued and so energy is more expensive. It seems a kind of a strange way to get inflation. And all else being equal, that will just wash out of the numbers in a year's time because you'll just have the base effect and the comparison with last year. So this doesn't look like very sticky inflation. I mean, to be fair... Um, even core core, which excludes energy, has jumped in the last month to um, 0.6%. So it, Japan is making progress. But to really make progress, what you're going to need is wages to go up. Because if wages don't go up, all you're going to have is a lot of people who feel poorer. And that's not going to be very good for demand. And the idea is to get demand going. So there's going to be an important wage round um, in March. Uh, uh, the big companies, I think, will be more or less instructed to put up wages. And in Japan, that might just work. The small companies that employ lots of people, uh, not, not, not so much. It is true that the labour market is tightening. It's 4% unemployment in Japan. And more importantly, I think, the jobs-to-job-seekers ratio is now 1, um, which is the tightest in, I think, six or seven years. So it's quite tight. So, you know, all, all else being equal, you may get a bit of um, uh, uh, wage appreciation. Then you've got the shock of the consumption tax. Now, even Abe's, one of his main advisors, a man called Etsuro Hondo, thinks this is crazy to put up consumption tax now. Why in a year that you're trying to get inflation would you hit the consumer? Um, now, there are reasons, of course. It's because of the big debt, and people think that they need to do that. But um, uh, it's not very helpful. Um, so we'll have to watch that very carefully. Fiscal sustainability. Um, there is a target to get to um, a... Uh, a, a basically balanced by 2020. Kuroda himself told us that he thought that was unrealistic and would not happen. Um, of course, he wants to raise taxes more because he's an ex-guy um, from the Ministry of Finance. Um, the more kind of worrying is one thing that could happen um, is that they may get inflation, they may get too much of it. Uh, bond, bond rates could, could um, um, go up very rapidly. That would mean that bond prices would fall and the banks have their balance sheets stuffed of bonds. And so maybe all the banks would go bust. This is what some people um, think will happen. I think it won't because I think this is, this is more or less kind of accounting. But also um, the, the banks have got rid of a lot of their long-term bonds. They've got much shorter-term bonds. And Kuroda says that the Bank of Japan has done a kind of a stress test, I guess. And you could have a three percentage point rise in interest rates and the banks would be fine. A few um, local banks might go bust, but... Um, that wouldn't be of much systemic um, import. Um, then there's also the question of Japan's sovereign debt. Would it be able to pay its debt if interest rates went up? Well, I think that is a real question. Um, of course, the Bank of Japan can keep suppressing interest rates by just buying everything that moves. But still, you've got a certain tension there. And then how the hell do they get out of this? So there's quite a lot of um, unknowns um, there. And then the biggest economic challenge, as I would see, is demographics. Um, in 19, let's see, get my numbers right, um, not that long ago, um, 5% of the population was over 65. Today it's 25%. It could be 40% in 20 years, 25 years. And the labour force is already shrinking. It will continue to shrink by about 5% a year. The population will shrink by about uh, 1% a year, I think. could be down to 100 million um, in 2040. Uh, all of this is a sort of, this is a, a headwind. Um, now, I think demographics is not destiny in quite the way that it is sometimes um, presented, and we could, we could talk about that. I mean, there are countries that have absolutely marvellous demographics, youthful population and everything. Pakistan is one of them, and its economy is not doing so well. And so I don't think demographics is destiny, but, um, uh, but it's certainly a big question mark. Let me move on now to politics and geopolitics and, the, and history. And they are related, as I hope I'll have time to explain. Um, I'll go for about 10 minutes, so I'm going to speed up now. So these are the three guys that are in charge of Northeast Asia at the moment. Sorry, two guys and one woman. Um, and they're not talking to each other. Park, Gyeonghae, is talking to Xi Jinping, but Park is not talking to Abe, and Xi Jinping is not talking to Abe. This is extraordinary. Uh, this is... Uh, 
this is like Merkel not talking to Hollande. Maybe Hollande's busy, I don't know. But, um, um, or Cameron not, uh, not stepping foot on continental Europe, which I guess is also possible. But, um, but seriously, I mean, this is really, you know, kind of alarming. I mean, Xi Jinping has basically said, I'm not seeing Abe, ever. So that's it. Uh, you know, if he sticks to his word, and Abe's in power of 2016. Abe's grandfather is Kishi. Um, uh, Kishi... Uh, used to run Manchuria, used to run um, uh, uh, Japan's kind of industrial complex, you know, in the 1930s and the 1940s, which was not, in retrospect, a good period for Japan. Um, Kish, um, Abe's biography starts with him sitting on Kishi's knee. And a lot of what motivates Abe is this sense to kind of rescue the reputation of his grandfather. His grandfather was arrested as a war, uh, A-class war criminal, uh, class A war criminal, was then released and actually became prime minister. Um, but there's this thing that hangs over him. Uh, you know, he represents for Abe, I think, the, the post-war settlement, the post-war settlement which was, you know, Japan was deprived of having an army. Uh, it was labelled untrustworthy forever. Um, it was labelled, in a sense, as uniquely evil, just, you know, to put it very bluntly. And Abe wants to overturn that, and it's very personal. Park Yang-hye, her father was a man called Masao Takagi, um, also known as Park Chung-hee, who became dictator of Korea during its absolutely sort of phenomenal economic um, takeoff, the miracle on the River Han. Um, uh, but he was in the Imperial Army, so you could call him a co- collaborator. He was also, when he became uh, leader of South Korea, he was much closer to Japan than he was to communist China because he was more anti-communism than he was anti-Japan. So, again, there was this kind of Cold War alliance. Now, for Park Gyeonghe, his daughter, this is a poisonous legacy, um, and she needs to distance herself from that, which is why her first trip was to Beijing, which is why she wraps Abe over the knuckles at any opportunity. He's given her plenty of ammunition, I should say, um, and also refuses to meet him. Xi Jinping's father, Xi Jongshun, uh, fought with Mao was in Yan'an, um, fought the Japanese. He's part of that Communist Party story of defeating the Japanese. Um, then he became uh, party secretary, I think, of Guangdong province where, when opening a reform happened. This was a crucial period, obviously, in um, Chinese economic history. And because uh, the Communist Party needed some sort of ideology, I mean, this is one way of looking at it anyway, and, you know, nationalism became important again. And remember, even Mao and uh, Deng Xiaoping had basically decided to put history uh, aside. You know, they'd said so. Let's leave this for wiser heads um, in the future. Well, unfortunately for Northeast Asia, the future seems to be now because and they're not necessarily wiser heads. But these issues have really come to the fore. The interesting thing, I think, about this uh, these pictures are, in a sense, you know, these are the grandfathers and fathers and, uh, um, the, and the, the grandsons and the granddaughters fighting the same old battles. This is sort of personal. Um, I, I'll skip the apology um, bit. Um, I, I'll show you this chart because I, I, I like it. Um, so this is what Japan's army has been up to um, since 1945. Um, I went to, uh, because of course Japan doesn't have an army, it has a self-defense force, and they were not liked after the war. They were associated with defeat and, you know, some of the terrible things that Japan did, and there is, a, there is and was a consciousness about that. Uh, people, apparently the SDF forces found it very hard to find people to marry them. Um, so in order to kind of rehabilitate their, I mean, this is just one small example, but they became involved from, I think, 1955 in the Sapporo Snow Festival. And um, just as this was turning under Koizumi and there was a, 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 they were going to send some ground forces to I- Iraq, to Samoa, where well, they didn't do very much, but it was very symbolic. Um, I went to Sapporo to, to, to just to kind of do, do a story. And um, I, I talked to a captain and, I, and he said, I said, what did your general tell you to do? And he said, told us to make spellbinding s- statues to please the public, sir. And then I, t- I took a photograph of him, and he, put, he did the peace sign, which I thought was quite astonishing. Um, so I took another, and he sort of stood, you know, much more in the posture befitting a military man. But this is, the, this is the army, and this is what Abe can't stand, you know, because, as I say, Japan, you know, it's a Mickey Mouse army. I mean, what, you know, from Abe's point of view, why should Japan be uniquely not allowed to have an army? Why should it be uniquely mistrusted? Um, 
I think I'm going to end on this one. Um, probably you all know what these rocks are. Um, when I lived in Japan, I knew them as the senkaku. They have um, goats on them, they have uh, moles, and really nothing else. Um, about three or four years ago, I was interviewing a guy called Funabashi, who's a, um, a very well-known uh, journalist, the former editor-in-chief of the Asahi Shimbun. And I had to ask him before the interview, it was on a video, what do the Chinese call these islands? Diaoyu, okay? So now everybody knows Diaoyu. Now I would never write a story about these islands without saying uh, which Japan calls the Senkaku and which China calls Diaoyu. Um, this, uh, this is now um, what one Asian official called um, Asia's Palestine. I mean, that might be a bit of an exaggeration, but this is a, this is a fault line. So what happened? Well, I'm not going to go into the history too much, but basically in 1895... Japan incorporated these islands into its territory. That was the year that Japan was fighting China in the uh, Japanese-Sino War, which Japan won. Uh, Japan says, no, 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 this was before, uh, this was not part of the war. China says, basically, you stole them in the war, and therefore, as part of the uh, 1945 and the subsequent treaties, Potsdam and uh, San Francisco and all of that, you need to give them back. And Japan says, no, no, this is entirely different. So that's, that's you know, in a terribly crude nutshell, um, what it's about. So what does China want? Again, you'll read in uh, newspapers sometimes that it's all about oil and fish. But I don't think that is true at all. I think it's nothing to do with oil, it's nothing to do with fish, it's nothing to do with oily fish. It, it's really about... I mean, I think, actually, China wants them, quote-unquote, back. Um, I mean, is the bottom line. I think uh, China thinks they're theirs and wants them back because it's part of this um, narrative of China's humiliation um, 100 years 150 years of humiliation and this is a symbol of that You know, these were islands that from Beijing's point of view were stolen and um, they're going to get them back. I think there's a strategic um, value to these islands uh, as well um, if you think about a rising China you know, China now the second biggest economy in the world spending a lot on the military um, you know, at this rate, and you need to be careful about drawing straight lines, as you all know, but at this rate, you know, by the time Xi Jinping steps down, or even a little bit before, China should be the biggest economy um, in the world. It's a little bit unnatural, if you just think about how the world works, for China to be kind of pinned back along its coast, America to be, you know, which has sort of kept the Pax Americana post-1945, to use the Pacific as a as a lake to have submarines spying, to have planes spying all along the coast. If you just flip it and imagine uh, China doing the same, you know, along San Francisco or Los Angeles or Seattle, um, you kind of see that this, this um, looks a bit weird. And remember, as far back as, what, 1830, around then, the Monroe Doctrine, when the United States basically said, keep out of our backyard, and our backyard was quite a big backyard. It was, you know, uh, Central America and South America. And no Europeans should, should go anywhere near there. Now, China is not going to take anything like as extreme a posture. Um, but the current situation looks a bit untenable to me, despite the sort of supposed pivot of the United States back to the region, um, even though Kerry actually can't find the region on a map. But, um, so I think these islands are really at a kind of a fault line. Um, and so I think it's a very dangerous situation. I think China use, is going to use this very cleverly to, to, to sort of drive a wedge between... Um, Japan and the United States. And Japan, in a sense, is kind of double-doomed double um, in this scenario because Japan is, first, America's representative in the region. It's America's unsinkable battleship. And second, it's Japan. You know, uh, and it's the little brother that went crazy and has not been forgiven. And so as a result of all that, I think, you know, the, 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 these island disputes... You know, you haven't heard the last of them, put it like that. And again, I'm very happy to take questions um, uh, on that um, later. Just to finish off and to join the kind of economic and the, the geopolitics, um, you may remember that Abe was in power briefly in 2006. He was one of the here again, gone tomorrow prime ministers uh, who had a disastrous prime ministership um, and whose prime ministership literally ended in uncontrollable diarrhoea, literally. So he left, and you kind of thought that was it for Abe forever. And he came back. Um, why? Well, I really think he came back because uh, of China. Uh, I think Abe was made in Beijing, and I think if it hadn't have been for 
you know, the, the rising tensions over the Senkaku, the, the, the understanding in Japan that China, you know, was causing trouble, meant business this time. And then I think, uh, you know, the LDP would not have made the, Abe um, head of the LDP and the Japanese public wouldn't have, um, wouldn't have voted him in. Um, and so just, just really to round off, I think, you know, there's something called Fukoku Kyohe, which many of you, if you know about Japan, you'll know, know this phrase. So it's rich country, strong army. And this was a rallying cry of the Meiji Restoration to modernize in order to um, not be colonized, really, by the Westerners um, uh, when Commodore Perry's black ships came in. This was actually a phrase borrowed from China, as so many things are in Japan, and came from the Warring States period, 2000, more than 2,000 years ago. Um, uh, in China, but it's, 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 they're the same characters. But for Koku Kyohe, and I think that's what Abe thinks. I think Abe thinks rich nation, strong army, that if we don't have uh, an economy that's not flatlining, um, then no one's going to take us seriously. We're get, our role in the world will diminish. You know, in practical terms, we can't spend more on our army. But I think it's, it's more of a, an image thing, really. I think he thinks, you know, unless we give this a shot, you know, we're, do- we're doomed, we're toast. And so I think the, the, the nationalism of Abe and the economic policy of Abe are really kind of joined at the hip, um, which I find quite interesting. Anyway, I'm going to leave it there, uh, and uh, I'm very happy to take um, questions afterwards. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for a very stimulating lecture, and I'm sure there will be lots of of comments. Um, I would like, uh, first of all, to ask Professor Ian Nish um, to come and just briefly make a few comments on this lecture. Professor Nish is Emeritus Professor of International History at the LSE, and um, a long-standing expert on the development and the history of Japan. Thank you, Ian. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> I have just read the um, Bending Advers- Adversity, the book which David has written, He wrote it in Hong Kong, he says, in September 2013, or he completed it in 2013. It's written under the shadow of the triple adversity which Japan suffered in 2011, namely earthquake, uh, tsunami, and later Fukushima nuclear disaster. It offers a refreshing a panoramic view which covers the last 400 years of Japan, um, a comprehensive coverage of political, economic, cultural, and personal uh, matters, which becomes particularly rich for your period, that is, the, your period as the uh, Financial Times correspondent in Tokyo uh, from um, 2006, I think. 2002. 2002. Um, four or five years. I mention all this because as a former academic, I'm dreadfully jealous of this. Uh, David is a Japan watcher. He's staying on the spot, observing a society We poor academics go to Japan as tourists. We go for three three weeks here, three weeks there. We pick up little things. We try to make sense of small uh, items of evidence. I was fortunate enough to visit Japan annually in the, the 1990s and 2000s. I knew all about the economic condition because I was a regular reader of the Financial Times, I may say. Um, Everything in Japan seemed quite normal. Restaurants were full, 
trains were full, construction sites were everywhere. To the casual observer, everything seemed to be normal, as in the, age, uh, as in the 1980s. True enough, one was steered to Ueno Park, close to the center of Tokyo, where there were cardboard cities where men were living under blue tarpaulins in, in, in cardboard huts, really. Salary men outside practicing the physical exercises. I say that because, of course, working class people would not practice physical exercise outside cardboard huts. So they, they were middle class men, salary men who had lost their jobs. This was a practical demonstration of what one was reading in the newspapers and seeing in the cartoons. Um, it was close to the heartbreak which the Japanese were suffering, but were too reluctant to articulate themselves. It was hard to grasp what was wrong. And when I returned from these visits, I very often found myself going up in the lift, in an overcrowded lift in LSE, when a colleague would call out in a loud voice, what's gone wrong with that Japan of yours, Ian? And of course I didn't know the answer. <laughs> I, I hadn't had this lecture tonight. Um, I, I merely blushed and could only reply, well, you're an economist, you know everything. You tell me. Now, uh, I think I will only steer the questioning in one direction, and, and that is let's explore a little more about uh, Japan's Prime Minister, Shinzo Abe, um, about whom you've said some interesting things already. But um, we all know that one of the sticking points between Abe and Xi Jinping is the visits to Yasukuni Shrine. And we all know that for 20 years this has been a point of contention. Every time a prime minister has gone there, the, the Chinese have protested. Now Xi Jinping, as a, a newcome uh, leader in China, has said he will not talk unless... Japan. This is likely to be a cause of international uh, uh, collision, is it not? Why is it that the Japanese, who are so famous for compromise, for settling things, can't uh, uh, go back on, on this public demonstration they create tension by symbols. Um, we'd be delighted to hear David's feeling about the prospect if Abe is going to stay in power for uh, until 2016. Is this tension going to continue? And what, how can the international community control it? So, with my thanks uh, uh, for, for your presentation tonight and for the book earlier on, uh, and, if I may say so, for your basically optimistic view of, of Japan. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Professor Nish, for your, for your comments. Um, would you like to respond to that sure. question before we open the floor? Sit down? To I just realised I left my phone over there, but anyway, I'll, I'll pick that up afterwards. Oh, thank you. Um, so, before I uh, sort of, I'm, I'm sort of thinking aloud here. Before I go on to kind of what, what on earth might happen, I think um, we need to think a little bit about Yasukuni and why Abe went. Um, so, a lot of you will know all about Yasukuni, some perhaps won't. Uh, so, Yasukuni is a shrine in the middle of, um, uh, it's a Shinto shrine in the middle of Tokyo. Um, it was founded uh, by the state, I'm just remembering, yes, it was founded by the state after the uh, Meiji Restoration. And it was 
for those people who had fought for the emperor. It was where the souls of those people who had fought for the emperor went back, once they died, I should say, um, they go to Yasukuni um, and they join the emperor again and they become kami, which is a word that means, that can be translated as gods, which is a rather unfortunate word, really, when, um, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it looks odd, as you'll, as you'll see um, in, a, in a while. Um, now, so who went there? Well, uh, I mean, in fact, it's very interesting that um, Saigo Takamori, who was uh, a, a great leader of the Meiji Restoration, was not allowed inside Yasukuni because he later rebelled against the emperor. So, you know, you've got one of the great figures of the Meiji Restoration uh, is banned. But you have people who... Uh, you have Taiwanese and you have South Koreans who were conscripted or otherwise... Um, into Japan's imperial army in the 30s and 40s who are in Yasukuni, whether they want to be uh, or not. So there are two million souls in Yasukuni. I think all their names are registered, um, but uh, there, there, is no, there are no bones, there is, there's no nothing else there. Um, and in the 1970s, uh, so, so when the Americans came, they said that, um, they had, that Shinto, Shintoism and uh, the state had to be separated. So Yasukuni became a private institution um, run by private, private priests. So these private priests in, the, I think, the 1970s, they basically snuck the 14 Class A war criminals who'd been judged in, uh, uh, you'll correct me if I'm wrong with all of this, the Tokyo, Tokyo Tribunal, into Yasukuni, which means they wrote their names down, I guess, on a piece of paper, and said, they're here now. Um, and the emperor, since then, has not visited Yasukuni Shrine. Um, so why does Abe go, and why did Koizumi go to this place? Uh, there's another thing I should tell you about Yasukuni, actually, which is on the grounds of Yasukuni, there is a museum called the Yushkan. And the Yushkan Museum is basically a revisionist museum. The, the, it, it, it tells the story that Japan was just like everybody else, uh, just like European powers getting, getting an empire, that it was forced into war, that some of the horror stories of Nanjing or whatever were not. I think there, there is actually a slide that says, and then the happy people of Nanjing welcomed the, uh, the liberation of the city. It's a pretty dreadful place. Um, uh, and this sits on the grounds of, of Yasukuni. Um, now, Abe and Koizumi, and even quite reasonable Japanese people will sometimes say, this is our Arlington. This is just where we go um, uh, to commemorate our war dead. Good, bad, or indifferent they died for their country, you know, and we should honour them. And, of course, there's some people's relations are there, and that's where you go. That's where their souls are. They're not, they're not somewhere else. I mean, I've written editorials saying that they should have a different memorial. There's a secular memorial called Chidori Gafuchi. And, you know, uh, but, you know, some of these guys will say, but, you know, grandpa, Grandpa's not there. Um, so why does Abe want to go? I don't think it's because Grandpa's not there. I think um, Abe wants to go because, precisely because it is... It, it has this revisionist um, uh, air about it. Um, he wants to go because it's a symbol of overturning the, uh, um, the post-war order, which, as I said, w- um, uh, established Japan as uh, you know, uniquely bad. And uh, he thinks that this needs to be um, overthrown. Uh, he thinks that he has a right as a Japanese prime minister to, um, uh, to honour... Um, uh, the souls of those who died uh, for Japan, but obviously, for the for for uh, the Chinese and the South Koreans especially, um, Yasukuni is just a symbol of Japan's imperialism. It was the centre of the emperor cult, in whose name um, uh, Japan um, uh, became an imperial power. Um, and if you're in Asia, where the debate is far more heated than I'm explaining it um, they will say <coughs> Abe has gone to the grave of Adolf Hitler and bowed down the same, exactly the same these are the fascists of Asia and he's bowed down um, so the two views there's just, there is no reconciliation you know uh, I've been patiently explained a thousand times but can't, can't you explain that the souls once they're dead you know, they're, they're not good or bad, they're all gods, it doesn't matter what they did in their life. Um, can't you explain that every time the Japanese Prime Minister goes, he prays for peace, he um, says that um, there will never be war again. Can't you explain that the Japanese have not fired a shot in anger since 1945? You could explain that all you liked, but it wouldn't make a blind bit of difference, yeah? 
Um, so just as to where, where we go from here, I mean, I should say, I think that I was surprised that Abbe went so early. I thought he would go. Um, but why did Abbe go now? Well, I think the, the, the reason is that all his advisors, all the people at Gaimashor, the foreign, the foreign Affairs Ministry, uh, even some people in the Cabinet Office, they said to him, whatever you do, don't go, uh, because this is just going to create havoc. Um, and so Abbe, who's a bit of a pragmatist, actually, in some respects, uh, he said, OK, then. And if you remember, during his first year in office, he did not go to Yasukuni. And in fact, his first trip as prime minister in 2006, and I was actually on the plane, was to Beijing, where, they, um, uh, where he met Hu Jintao, and uh, they talked about building a strategic relationship. And relations got quite good for a bit. Hu, came, Hu and Wen Jiabao both came to uh, Tokyo on uh, state visits. And things looked um, uh, quite a lot better. So Abe can be um, a pragmatist. But on this occasion, he didn't go. He restrained himself from going. He sent a branch instead, um, uh, a commemorative branch. And uh, still, he got very, very much um, criticized. Still, Xi Jinping said, I'm not going to see you. Still, Park Genke said, I'm not going to see you. And so I think Abbe thought, what the, what the hell, you know? I mean, I'm not, go- <laughs> I'm, not getting any, uh, I'm not getting any joy out of not going, so I want to go, so I'm going to go. And uh, I, I really think it's as simple uh, as that. People talk about playing to the home constituency, and the- I don't buy that because actually, you know, half, maybe more than half, it depends, don't think he should go. Um, so, uh, you know, the Japanese public. So I don't think it's for political reasons. I think, it's, I think he goes because he wants to go. So where does that leave us? Well, in a very, very uncomfortable place, I'm afraid. Um, you know, I don't know if Xi Jinping and Abe will ever meet. I mean, they may meet on the fringes of meetings, but will they have a normal relationship? Probably not. Um, and just to take it one stage further, imagine that Japan apologized. I'm going to paint a picture that is so impossible that um, it's, it, it would defy belief. <coughs> Imagine the emperor went to Nanjing and said, yes, 300,000 people were killed, and I bowed down. He did a Willy Brandt, if you remember Willy Brandt and the Knifal in, um, uh, uh, um, uh, the, uh, uh, in Poland um, for, for the Jews massacred in, in um, Poland. Um, there's been no such moment um, uh, in Japan. Just imagine that the emperor did that, and then all the textbooks were changed to reflect a view of history that the Chinese were comfortable with and the South Koreans were comfortable with. I still think that... Tensions are so deep, and, that, uh, and there are some practical reasons that I think China finds it useful to keep these things alive as well, um, that I still think even then, and even then is impossible, I should say, absolutely impossible, this is never going to happen, you would still not get reconciliation. Um, so I'm very bleak. Um, I'm very bleak. And you could see that and, and just, just about the, the islands themselves. I mean, the possibility of a couple of things. One is just an accident. So someone gets drunk and, you know, um, sails their ship into another ship. Someone shoots. Someone gets on the island and plants a flag. You could see things getting out of hand quite quickly. And um, as I say, this is a real uh, sort of tectonic plate uh, part of the world because these islands, the the Americans say they um, uh, they have no view as to whether the islands are Japanese or um. Uh, or Chinese. But the islands are administered by Japan and therefore they come under the purview of the uh, US-Japan Security Treaty, which you would think would mean if the islands were ever attacked, America would treat them as as if Japan had been attacked and would come to Japan's defence. Now, I know lots of advisers to uh, the Prime Minister and to previous Prime Ministers who say, I doubt it, you know, I don't think the Seventh Fleet's coming. So just imagine the ability for China to kind of, if you want to call it, make mischief. I mean, it could, it could make a move, find America wanting, and then suddenly, um, you know, the whole sort of post-war order where Japan's um, defense has been outsourced to America uh, and Japan has been a client state in some sense of America, that's all, you know, really threatened because the Japanese think, well, what the hell is this um, treaty with the United States worth? Um, and in fact, you know, this is an extreme scenario I've painted, but something sort of a, a pale shadow of that has already happened. And this was this declaration in December, I think, of uh, something called an ADIZ, an Air Defense Identification Zone, 
And basically the Chinese said, we have this zone, an air zone, um, and any plane entering that zone needs to tell us because it's ours, it's our airspace. And that zone included these islands that are disputed. And so the Japanese said, no way. And their airlines were um, flying in and not, not telling the Chinese under, under government instruction. Um, and they expected the Americans to play the same game, but the Americans did not. They told their airlines that for safety's sake, they did need to inform Beijing. Um, and then Vice President Biden came to Japan and uh, didn't make a strong statement. He went to China and did not make a strong statement. And the, the Japanese feel let down. They feel that so if, if China's aim is to drive a wedge between the United States and, uh, and Japan, then it, uh, it could be working. Right. Before your voice goes out, I'm very sorry that we don't have time for more questions. It might be that if you sneak down and ask, ask David individually, just for a short time, he would answer them. Um, I should remind you that the book is on sale outside and David will be staying for a bit if anybody wishes to buy one and have it signed. Um, I'd like to ask you to show your appreciation, certainly of the Asia Research Center for organizing this lecture, and obviously particularly to David to, for coming today and talking to us. Thank you very much. Thank indeed. you.